Hello everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films uh, via the medium of a theme that changes from episode to episode. I'm Joe Gastineau. Uh, hello everyone, and uh, joining me as uh, always is Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? You alright? Yeah, I'm doing alright. Um, this week we're going to do a, a top ten episode. We haven't done one of those uh, in a while. Um, and uh, yeah, just for a little bit of context, this is our fourth attempt to record this, having been beset by uh, technical problems, uh, stupidity, tiredness, etc., etc. Um, a lot of things have gone wrong with this. So I believe that uh, this is going to come off this time, uh, and nothing's going to stop us now, as Starship once said. I'm very hopeful and worried. Yeah, well, speaking of Starship, eh? Right, okay, you going with me here? Uh, this week's top ten, um, what are we doing, Ed? It's it's kind of musically themed, isn't it? It is, it's very musically themed. Our, our uh, theme this week is top ten musical moments in non-musical films, so that's films which, for all intents and purposes, are a particular genre, a comedy or a drama or whatever, and then just in the middle they'll have a musical sequence and uh, we're specifically talking about music that originates from the film so it's where people break into song or where uh, people are listening to songs on the radio or there's a very particular stage sequence so it's not just, you know, a montage set to really cool music because otherwise uh, we'd have been spoiled for choice instead we've given ourselves a very small limited uh, window to explore yes um and yeah like uh, concert films are also excluded um and yeah anything that's kind of vaguely musicalish uh, is out um so we'll crack on uh, with this top 10 but before we do so it's obligatory that we hear the jingle um and here it is Okay, Ed, what's the first pick in our top ten musical moments in non-musical films? Uh, The first pick is the pick that uh, kind of inspired this whole idea. It's um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seas performing From Her to Eternity in uh, Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. I was listening to uh, the WTF with Mark Maron podcast where Nick Cave was on and they were discussing the fact that he's in Wings of Desire which uh, is, a, is a wonderful film that I'm, I'm very fond of and I'm very fond of his performance in it and this uh, you know started my mind kind of turning over and thinking about similar uh, scenes and uh, I, I really love the one in uh, in Wings of Desire because you know Wings of Desire is a, a German film about angels in Berlin um, and they're kind of it follows them as they follow the living around, and it's a very sort of um, melancholy film, very sad film, and sort of, but also a very beautiful film. And uh, you know, it's all about what it is to be human and the desire to be human. And uh, it culminates with uh, uh, with the main characters all coming together at a concert being performed by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, where they perform this song from Her to Eternity which uh, is a very raw rock song on the the album version and then in the film it's just you know it's like a force of nature being unleashed and it's like all of the desire and uh, emotions that have been suppressed or held back throughout the whole of the film are suddenly unleashed by this mad raving Australian on stage and uh, so I think that that one for me always stands out as just this great moment when a film just kind of stops to allow a musical performance to unfold in its entirety uh, but it, it 
uh, plays such an important role in the drama that it doesn't feel indulgent. It feels actually like somehow this is what the whole film's been building up to, even though it's actually just kind of dropped in there right at the end. Yeah, and it's it's kind of um, integral to that feeling of as uh, of establishing Berlin as a as a kind of artsy, kind of quite dark scene. I mean, obviously, there's a great history of of uh, modern pop and rock music being recorded there and at that point in time and that point in kind of Berlin's history that performance feels quite apt. Yeah and I do like the story behind how Vin Vendors asked uh, how um, Nick Cave got in the film which is that he was in Berlin he was trying to uh, he was uh, trying to kind of escape from uh, his various addictions and problems in his life and he just happened to become friends with Vin Vendors and he was just kind of like, hey, can you uh, can you appear in this film? And he's like, sure, why not? And I just like something so simple as that can just lead to some this kind of really uh, profoundly moving and powerful moment, you know, and it does kind of fit that idea of Berlin as this kind of bohemian paradise and, you know, even as it's, you know, a city divided and everything's kind of crumbling around it. Yeah. Okay, well that's a good choice, Ed, and a, and a good kind of stimulus for this episode. Um, from the kind of dark, brooding uh, antipode and rage of uh, of Nick Cave, I'm going to go for something altogether lighter. Um, I'm going to go for uh, the sequence uh, in the film 500 Days of Summer, uh, in which uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, has a... There's a kind of a big musical dance sequence to You Make My Dreams Come True by Hall & Oates. Uh, I'm going to caveat this choice. Uh, by saying that um, I don't really like the film 500 Days of Summer um, it's a bit what's the word I'm looking for it's a bit wet isn't it Ed mm. a bit soppy it's a bit lightweight mm. it's a bit kind of uh, you know Ikea <laughs> do you know what I mean it's a bit Café Rouge it's a bit kind <laughs> of you know lettuce It's not. there's not really much there it's you know Maybe if you don't really like films very much, and you saw it, you'd be like, "Oh, that's a really good film, that." But it's it's not, is it? It's a bit kind of saccharine. It's a bit. It's just a, sh- a bit shit. That said, the moment in the film where uh, Mr. Gordon Levitt uh, gets laid, uh, I think for the first time with Summer, played by uh, Zoe Deschanel, um, is brilliant, isn't it? He kind of uh, everything kind of clicks for him, and this this kind of great kind of elaborate. Uh, uh, dance number evolves, and there's you know everything involved. He sees, he looks in the window to check his reflection, and he's hand solo, uh, and then he kind of the baseball bat swing, and kind of like a lot of people join. It's just a very cool moment, isn't it? It is. I think it's one of the few moments in the film where it really kind of fulfills its potential because I think, in large part, it kind of posits itself as this kind of postmodern romantic comedy, but for the most part, it actually just settles into being a fairly straightforward romantic comedy with slightly hipper references mm. uh, you know sort of references to the smiths and performing uh pixie songs at karaoke and there are only really a handful of scenes that really kind of stand out there's that one and then the polar end of it you have the the, the scene which i love which is the split screen sequence at the party where on the left hand of the screen you see how he wants the party to play out and on the right hand side you see how the party actually does play out and it's a wonderful uh uh, example of sort of contrasting expectations and which I think pretty much anyone who's ever gone to a party where they're going to see like an ex or they're just kind of really dreading it will kind of be familiar with that situation of 
how you want to go in and everything's going to be cool and it just isn't but the the musical sequence is is kind of just a wonderful embodiment of that sort of that sense of confidence of really being on top of the world and what's really nice about it is how it does kind of slowly build like the music kicks in he looks in the window and he sees Han Solo and then by the end of it you know there's animated birds and there's hundreds of extras dancing in the streets and it just builds so wonderfully and just so encapsulates that sense of uh of excitement and and sort of love and everything that it, it really works and it's kind of the I easily like one of the best moments in the whole film which you know like you I'm kind of down on in general mm. even though I think it's it's got some interesting ideas and in general it's kind of seems it's not irredeemably awful but it just seems to me like a load of really missed opportunities and that's in some ways worse yeah because there is a lot going for it on paper um, but it just doesn't click does it no it just for some reason most of it just doesn't kind of fit together but you know that musical sequence is just a a brilliantly a brilliant melding of sort of form and content Mm. in what it wants to represent about a relationship and how it goes about it and it does it in a way that's witty and you know fun and actually genuinely innovative and you know I think that's why you know when I think of that film that's kind of one of the few things I kind of think about and look on kindly as opposed to the fact it has one of the worst lines in the history of cinema when he goes to his job interview and he sees uh, Minka Kelly and he goes up to her and says uh, and asks her name and she says it's Autumn which just makes me cringe every time I think about it I'd forgotten about that bit and uh, <laughs> I just kind of uh, shuddered hey how funny would it be if like someone could edit together please if you're technically minded do this if uh, when he comes out of the apartment and he looks in the window instead of seeing Han Solo he sees uh, Harrison Ford from like K-19 the Widowmaker or something <laughs> because you know after I've slept with someone that's generally how I feel kind of haggard <laughs> going through the motions uh, kind of greying feeling a lot older than I am too old for this shit uh, yeah kind of crystal skull <laughs> indie uh, looking back uh, yeah anyway yeah so that's the pick uh, a great moment from a yeah not so not so good film uh, what's your next pick Ed uh, my next one's a good pick from a very good film, one that you and I are both fans on, uh, of. It's the ballet sequence from Tetro, which mm. is uh, the Francis Ford Coppola film from a few years ago about uh, two brothers who reconnect with each other in, I want to say, Argentina. And, oh, it's you know, Argentina, all right. It's definitely Argentina. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're both uh, from artistically-minded uh, sort of family, and uh, Tet- the Tetro character played by uh, Vincent Gallo is sort of written backwards he's written the story of his life and his brother finds it and uh, they decide to turn it into uh, a play and you know a performance but uh, and they're on the way to the performance I believe when uh, Vincent Gallo's character starts to sort of remember the uh, the the uh, car accident that killed his mother uh, which is you know a very heartrending moment but the way they reimagine it is as a as a ballet and it's this Amazing. There's a couple of ballets in the film, but they're these these amazing uh, combination of choreography and movement and color. And you know, if you watch the sort of making of stuff, uh, these kind of uh, green screen effects. So you know, you see real life dancers kind of performing on the stage, and then suddenly the backgrounds shift around, and it's this really wonderfully evocative, uh, expressionistic touch in a film which is fairly evocative you know to begin with but is generally quite naturalistic mm. in sort of its drama 
and then suddenly you have, and obviously it's in black and white, so the sudden in, injection of colour, which obviously draw, which draws upon the uh, the red shoes and the tails of Hoffman, which are uh, the tails of Hoffman in particular, are actually featured in the film at one point, and um, the pound both Powell and Pressburger films, and you know it's a, it's just this really startling moment that kind of leaps out at you from the film, both because of the presentation of it, but also because of how it stands in contrast to everything that's going on around it. Yeah, in isolation as well, that scene kind of uh, uh, encapsulates uh, Mr. Coppola's uh, two kind of uh, uh, kind of main preoccupations, really, that kind of uh, familial tension and uh, creative uh, uh, jealousy, but also kind of done with the kind of the grand theatricality that Mr. Coppola likes to do things. Yeah, and it also encapsulates what he said about the film which is that none of these things happened all of them are true mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know his the, the autobiographical elements of the film and you know his own relationship with his family members which obviously play a big part in all of his films but uh, you know you see with that dance sequence it's obviously completely uh, outrageous and sort of outlandish in comparison to the rest of the film but it's still is expressing very raw and real emotion, and I think that that cuts to the heart of what he's exploring with that film. Even though it kind of feels like something that's kind of been that's kind of bulldozed in from another film entirely. Yeah, that's a good pickhead. That's a, I'd be very much like to revisit that film because I've only I've only seen it once uh, when it came out. Um, does it hold up on uh, on repeat viewings? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it, there's still a little bit of sort of um, waywardness and kind of, it's it kind of a bit shaggy around the edges, but uh, it's one of his one of his best films in general. But certainly, sort of the best thing he's done in quite quite some time, at least at least uh, two decades. Mm. The best thing he's done since Jack. <laughs> Which yeah. God, I noticed that on uh, on Netflix they've added uh, Twixt. Um, have you watched that yet? I haven't. I am quite intrigued by it. It sounds uh, insane. Yes, it does. Anyway, that's um, you know that's probably for our Coppola special uh, months down the line uh, when we get around to doing one. Um, my next choice is um, again in stark contrast to yours, um, the piano sequence from Big, which again Big isn't one of my favourite films. I mean, I've seen it many times. Uh, I think you'd have to be a very hard-hearted and cynical person not to find something to enjoy in the film Big. Um, but I think. If you didn't like the piano sequence with Tom Hanks and uh, Robert Loggia dancing on the giant piano, then uh, you're probably dead inside, aren't you? Yeah, I mean that's such a expression of kind of the joy of that film in in sort of embodied by uh, you know Tom Hanks being sort of a, a child in a man's body, just kind of getting to do things that he would uh, never get to do as a kid or an adult, because obviously that'd be frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. Also, seeing the effect that he has on Robert Loggia, who's obviously like a much older guy, but just sees something in Tom Hanks that makes him think, "Yeah, I want to do that. I want to have a little bit of crazy fun in a massive toy store," which I think really is what everyone wants to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just it is a really wonderfully staged sequence with them playing the tune together. Um, although, whenever I think of it, I can't help think of Homer Simpson failing to do it. <laughs> on the Simpsons when he makes an absolutely horrible noise. Well, um. Being, uh, I mean, obviously you've moved to America now, so one thing you miss is uh, ITV4, and uh, ITV4 shows Scarface. Well, you say miss. Oh, yeah. Well, ITV <laughs> show, ITV4 shows Scarface probably twice a week, 
and mm. um, uh, Scarface uh, featured Robert Loggia. And every time there's a scene with him <laughs> that he cuts with him leaving a room, I always expect him to see him enter the next room and dance on a giant piano. <laughs> and I think that again, any technically minded people out there needs to do a Scarface slash Big Mashup um, because I think that would really punctuate uh, the seriousness and po face nature of Scarface uh, with you know Dancing Man on a Piano. Scarface slash Big Mashup sounds like they should be playing at Fus- uh, Fusion and Foundry. Yeah, absolutely right. It does sound <laughs> uh, grimy, um, but yeah, lovely moment. Um, and it features the two uh, things that everyone can play on the piano, which is uh, Heart and Soul. Is it called Heart and Soul? That is that Heart and Soul? I think that's Heart and Soul. And then Chopsticks, mm. which is the bit of the uh, sequence everyone forgets. No, Chopsticks is probably is the one that I forget just because it's the one that <laughs> just seems like the most painful to do because you have to do the splits more or less by the end of it to yeah. reach the uh, separate parts. Absolutely. Um, but yes, a lovely moment in a lovely film. Um, uh, what's your next pick, Ed? My next pick is uh, again going to kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from big, bright Hollywood comedy to uh, small scale uh, Indian melodrama in Charilata, directed by Satyajit Ray, mm-hmm. which is a story about a woman who uh, is, is married to a, a newspaper editor who uh, very slowly begins to realise she's falling in love with his sort of uh, slightly slackerish, wayward younger brother who's interested not interested in the sort of printing business but is interested in uh, art and literature and stuff and so and their their friendship is initially formed over their shared love of writing and he he persuades her to kind of pursue her writing a bit more and the scene in which she kind of is inspired by that but also starts to realise her her love for him is a scene in which she uh, sits on a swing and swings back and forth and the camera is attached to the swing so it's kind of capturing her motion in uh, in reminiscence of uh, the for some reason the only thing I can think of that does a similar thing is there's a, a Metallica video which does exactly the same thing but to less haunting and beautiful effect mm. uh, because uh, James Hetfield is not a haunting or beautiful man no. and um, and in it you know she just sings this this lovely kind of slow ballad and kind of swings back and forth and it's just this very nice sort of poetic moment capturing the movement and kind of capturing this this very quiet little moment she has with herself where she suddenly you know where her life suddenly changes you know just in a very small subtle way her attitude about the world changes and that you know obviously has repercussions as the film goes on but it's just this this really uh, beautiful quiet uh, little moment in a film that's generally quite quiet and beautiful as a lot of uh, Ray's films were, but you know it's it's it stands out for that use of a of a, a lovely little song. You just telling me about that reminds me of uh, a similar moment in uh, the Kurosawa film, the Ikiru. Yes, which uh, has a heartbreaking moment on a swing, mm. uh, but but there it's uh, I think the the there it's a man kind of towards the end of his life, whereas this is more kind of someone. Or, or someone kind of reflecting on their life's work, whereas this is someone kind of about to embark on their life work, mm. life's work. But uh, both both beautiful films. I think Akiru, at various points, uh, troubles my top ten of all time. It's a, it's a, well, an absolutely amazing film. Well, speaking of other things that have troubled the top ten, hey, segue. You see what I did there? Nice. Um, got a, a few films that we kind of knocked together that didn't quite make it, but we feel like they're uh, kind of... Um, uh, mention worthy um, 
Or worthy of a mention. Uh, there we Why go. Not? Um, I've got a couple of films, uh, kind of old school films, where it was it was uh, the want of studios to cast a, a musical actor in a role and have them sing a song, maybe the theme song. I've got a couple of examples here. They're done to very good effect. We've got Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's, where Audrey Hepburn sits on a windowsill with a little guitar and gives it a plinky plonk and sings a very nice song. Um, then we've got uh, Rio Bravo, uh, the great moment where Dean Martin sings uh, the the ballad of Rio Bravo. Um, another one I thought of uh, just now is the bit from Zulu, uh, where the the kind of the, the facing uh, the inevitable onslaught, um, the uh, Welsh Guard sing their their kind of song, uh, their fight song, as you call them in America. Um, uh, and then a, a personal favourite of mine is the uh, lip sync along that John Cryer does in Pretty in Pink. Uh, which is a pretty fucking cool moment to uh, try a little tenderness. Um, you've got any that you stick out for you that very nearly made it? Uh, yeah, the the main one that uh, leaps out to me because it's a moment I like in a film I don't uh, is the sequence in which everyone sings "Tiny Dancer" in Almost Famous. Uh, yes, which, as I say, is a film I'm not a huge fan of. I don't really buy into the sort of mythologizing of seventies rock kind of vibe to it and I just and I think if you're not on board with that element of the film that it's not really much there's not really much there to offer. Mm-hmm. Um and I do I do just generally find it a little bit grating and annoying. But uh, that sequence I think embodies everything that everyone who likes the film likes about it. You know, I think it, there's a wonderful sense of community and of sort of freedom and just all coming together to sing this uh, dis- delightful little song. And even though the rest of the film I really don't care for at all, um, that moment, you know, has always stuck with me as, you know, a real kind of highlight. Mm. It's a great moment, and uh, I'll I'll agree with you. I think Almost Famous is bullshit. Uh, I think, I, I remember after I saw it, I didn't really know anything about Cameron Crowe, and then I found out he actually went on tour with Led Zeppelin and those mm. kind of bands, and I was just like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> it's like, this was like, he turned in a script about... Uh, you know, the most salacious kind of like 15-year-old kid goes on tour with Led Zeppelin uh, um, script and it got passed around from Miramax to DreamWorks and ended up at fucking Disney and Disney were like, well, I'll tell you what, we'll make out of this. It'll be kind of this great story that's really nice and then at the end, the rock star will go against everything he believes in and stands for and stick up for you so you can, you know... And I was just like, eh? What? It's just so wet. It's the 500 Days of Summer of, of uh, bands on tour movies. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with you there. Mm, yeah, it's rubbish. But that's a great moment. Um, okay, I'm going to pick one. I feel like I've picked very light films so far, very, shall we say, uh, easygoing films and, uh, shall we say, not challenging films. You know, you've picked Satajit Ray, uh, Vim Vendors and Francis Ford Coppola, and I've <laughs> gone for 500 Days of Summer and Big so far. So I'm going to pop in with a little bit of weight here um, I'm going to pick um, the moment which I regard as probably one of the most audacious moments and sequences from kind of films of like the last 20 odd years is the uh, Wise Up sing-along from the film Magnolia Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, wonderful uh, kind of sprawling collage of a film, uh, a film which I'm kind of uh, mildly obsessed with uh, and for you know, kind of for various reasons, but one is the use of music in that film. And uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, if you watch his films, he's very kind of sonically driven. He he builds his films in a kind of a musical sense. And Magnolia is is a 
great example of how he does it. Um, there, there are bits in that that just kind of blow my mind. There's like a musical cue that lasts, I think, about 45 minutes, a non-stop piece of orchestration, and the way things bleed into it, the, like the next and 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 the most, like I say, audacious bit of the entire film is when the, the kind of the drama of the film builds to a a kind of crescendo, and this point. Paul Thomas Anderson has all his actors stop and sing along to a song by Amy Mann. Amy Mann's songs feature all the way through the film. They kind of weave in and out, but they also there is there is uh, passages of dialogue between characters which are lyrics from Amy Mann's songs that have been recorded previously. The whole thing is this kind of it just kind of mind-bending uh, use of music, and and that bit of the film in particular is just so bravado and brilliant that you, in other hands it, you'd think this is so self-indulgent, so pretentious, and and so kind of just unnecessary. But then at that point in the story, with the the kind of the emotional uh, pitch that all the characters are kind of at hitting. It just is the most perfect moment in that film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right to refer to it as like a crescendo because I always think of that film as almost like a symphony. You know, it, it has uh, movements rather than acts. You know, as the music kind of carries you along and the drama kind of ebbs and flows with the music, and you know, that's kind of the point at which it all kind of crashes together and they, you know, complete the, the fourth wall and everything completely breaks down mm. and the characters just kind of turn and start singing to the audience directly. And you're right, it is just like completely audacious and uh, kind of out of nowhere because the film, apart from the sort of opening prologue with all of the different uh, versions of people uh, dying in strange circumstances, there's not that much kind of uh, sort of playing around with form. It's, it kind of starts at a very high emotional pitch and then kind of maintains it throughout. And I think it is, you know, to, to do that, to make a film that is so sort of rawly in ocean for so long and then suddenly just to kind of break that all down and just have it all come out in a, in a song is uh, is kind is really jaw-dropping even now you know, it's very hard to imagine anyone doing that with a, a, a film with a fairly sort of sizable budget and such a huge sprawling cast of stars to just kind of say and now you break into a song by Amy Mann who most people haven't really heard of but it's going to be amazing mm. yeah and it's difficult to see um, a lot of the stars in that film trusting anyone else to do something like that mm. yeah because it is on the face of it kind of a ridiculous thing to say that you know in the middle of this otherwise uh, sort of, uh, this drama that's kind of very grounded in reality to just suddenly say and then suddenly you all burst into song is, you know, it is a very big ask of an actor and then also to trust that they'll be able to carry off the scene along part without it being kind of cloying or weird. Yeah. It really works. And it's not cloying or weird whereas it it kind of should be. So should Mm. be if you (laughs) describe that there's going to be a multi uh, kind of narrative film with uh, this cast talking about like kind of set over one day and then at the point at which you want to know what's going on in all their lives they're going to stop and sing you just like huh? Um, but it works so beautifully well um, and uh, that is by far and away the most upmarket thing I'm going to pick on this list <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes a great moment what's your next one Ed? Okay, uh, go down market a bit now to uh, a song from the Mel Brooks film The Producers mm. and uh, the song in particular because it's maybe the only song in the film is uh, Springtime for Hitler 
the the film that produces you know I think most people know the story but it's about a a uh, a Broadway producer who uh, falls upon the money making scheme of getting all these old women that he's been seducing to invest in a musical saying that they've all got a 10% share and then have the musical be a complete flop uh, so that they can just run off with the money and not have to pay anyone mm-hmm. and uh, the everything seems to be going great they've got the worst leading man imaginable they've got the worst play imaginable a play that um, <laughs> Uh, uh, lionizes Hitler and <laughs> praises him as the savior of Germany, and uh, and you know just has these absolutely awful awful songs, and then you know you don't really see much of the play until the opening night, when you see it in its <laughs> in all of its glory, and it starts with this song called Springtime for Hitler, which has just amazing uh, amazing lines like uh, don't be don't be dumb, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party has big uh high kicking uh numbers and just this <laughs> the you know people uh doing a chorus line in the say, sh- shape of a swastika mm. and it has all of the it's just this amazing outburst of bad taste that is 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 still jaw dropping today but it's staged so beautifully <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? the 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 idea of a busby berkeley swastika is brilliant and uh busby berkeley Busby Berkeley Swastika is a good name for a band as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll jot that one down mm-hmm. in the file. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing about the producers is um, I've not ever seen the remake. Most people, uh, well, tragically, I think an awful lot of people will be familiar uh, from its kind of rebirth as a stage musical and then consequently a film of the stage musical. How's it handled in the remake? Uh, I've not seen it. Seen it? Yeah, I, I refuse to watch it. I know that the the stage version is obviously meant to be very good and a big hit, mm-hmm. but uh, everything I've only ever seen sort of clips of the musical version, and it just uh, it just doesn't seem to work very well. Although I am intrigued by Will Ferrell playing the uh, the writer of the play, he seems like a good fit for that role. Yeah, uh, I was speaking. Uh, some friends came over for dinner the other day, and um, they said that they went to see the producers in Manchester. And uh, playing the actor who has the lead part in um, uh, Springtime of Hitler uh, was Peter Kay. Wow. Can you imagine such a thing? No, not really. Just based on the, 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 the film version, you know, there's such a different energy between the two. You know, uh, Peter Kay's a very manic performer, and uh, that guy has his whole thing, is kind of plays. Uh, you know, plays Hitler as kind of a hepcat. You mm. know, just kind of like a Libya, a baby, just leave me alone. <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff is. You know, it doesn't really. Uh, it's it's not exactly uh, subtle, but I think it's a slight a few steps down the the ladder from sort of Peter Kay's level. Yeah, but uh, I I know he he did go to like uh, performing arts school, so he probably could do it very well. Mm. I, I'm disappointed that. Um... You didn't get to see the full Springtime for Hitler number in the Kirby Enthusiasm uh, <laughs> episode, uh, in which that's the punchline to a glorious joke, uh, ten-episode joke, elaborate gag about the producers, um, which really doesn't make sense unless you've seen the producers. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of uh, homages and uh, lines lifted directly from the film <laughs> included in that scene. And it really is just a payoff to an entire year's worth of episodes to mm. that 
recreation of that amazing sequence, yeah. complete with uh, the uh, recreation of the amazing reaction shot of people just staring, kind of bug-eyed, at uh, <laughs> at the uh, the performance on stage. I think they also recreate the idea of one guy standing up and clapping and then being beaten up for doing so. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, my next pick, uh, I'm going to go back to Market again, um, is, well, not Market. it's a great moment. Um, it's the uh, Twist and Shout parade sequence from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, which is a hugely joyous moment and a kind of uh, another crescendo of the film in which uh, a, a truant uh, by the name of Ferris Bueller um, uh, takes a day off and starts to kind of run amok around Chicago and, and his kind of antics uh, kind of uh, increase in size and scale and, and they get to the point where he has a float in a parade in uh, in uh, a kind of a, a city full of people and it's this kind of idea that he is using Chicago as his playground for the day um, and that moment is just so joyous and fun uh, that I just had to include it yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Ferris Bueller's Day Off as a film. I just find Ferris to be such an annoying character to he spend is a time with. Bit of a prick. Um, but there are there are certain sequences of it that are amazing. The use of yellow is uh, is uh, always amusing to me. But uh, the and you know the music in general is quite nice, and I do like the moment when they use the orchestral version or the instrumental version of. Uh, um, the Smiths, please, yeah. Let me, yeah, let me get my want. Where you're staring at a painting, I do like that. But the uh, the the, the twist and such shout is, you know, in contrast to that, it's just such a huge, vibrant number that it really kind of stands out as, you know, the the one part of the film that I really genuinely enjoy. Uh, you know, where that level of kind of smug confidence that uh, Ferris has kind of makes sense because you really have to be smug and confident to think you can get up on the stage on a float in the middle of the parade and uh, hijack it yeah absolutely and it's like one of my favourite Beatles songs as well I kind of dig mm. that kind of r and I know it's kind of frowned upon but like the, that kind of early R&B sound I prefer the early stuff you know the Beatles <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I prefer them when they were the quarrymen you know when you hadn't really heard of them yet uh, I'm a big fan of their silver Beatles period <laughs> Yeah, I just love just being, on the cusp. Yeah, love being a Beatles hipster. Um, <laughs> okay, I think we're up to your last choice. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, my last choice is uh, going in. In contrast to some of the choices I've made so far, which have been a little heady, uh, I'm going to go for something that is a big, big, vibrant, fun, ridiculous slapstick sequences, and it is the performance of the, the merry round, merry go round broke down from the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh wow! Yeah, where uh, Bob Hoskins, in order to Eddie, Eddie Valiant, mm-hmm. give him his name, he uh, performs a version of that song in order to defeat the weasels by convincing them all to laugh themselves to death with improvised lyrics and using props until they laugh themselves to death. And I just think that is—it's a really, you know, it's from a character moment. You know, it's him embracing being ridiculous after you know being uh, hating tunes and just kind of trying to be really serious all the way through but it's just such a, a deliriously silly stage sequence with silly puns like uh, when he's uh, <laughs> he says I'm bouncing off the walls I'll kick you in the and then uh, Roger just goes nose and he just goes that doesn't rhyme with walls and he goes yeah but this does and then kicks him straight in the groin mm. and it's just a very there's just lots of very silly humour in there but it's a sequence that 
I'm, I'm just immensely fond of and I just really really love Bob Hoskins sort of commitment to that particular part of the role after you know an hour and a half or 80 minutes or whatever of having to play someone who's kind of sad and dead and uh, upset about the death of his brother and hates tunes and is this kind of dark character and then just suddenly gets to let loose with a song and dance number mm. yeah I do love that bit um and uh, yeah, when Bob Hoskins, obviously his career has come to an end now, he's retired from acting uh, this year. Um, but he probably could look back and think, well, at one point I did kick a cartoon weasel in the crotch during a musical and Olivier can't and say that. Olivier can't say that, absolutely. And he blacked up at one point. So, you know, <laughs> Hoskins might have done that, but not in film. Um, but yeah, that's, that is a, that's a high point. Not many people could tick that one off the old list. No, just him, and I don't know. Mugabe probably did it at some point. He's a mad bastard. He is. He probably does it once a week. Um, <laughs> the thing about Roger Rabbit, I noticed this when I watched it last, that like the film goes to such great lengths to um, kind of uh, make it believable, and it is. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking fantastic film. Who, who filmed Roger Rabbit and I don't want to come across now as one of those assholes who picks out movie mistakes right but like they go to such great lengths to to make you believe in the world that like um, every special effect is is just so natural and it's it's not a special effect it's it's part of the story that's moving you along and it's not dragging you out of it by thinking how was it done how was it done but there's a bit in the film where Bob Hoskins I think he slides on the floor and it's really obvious you can see a trolley with wheels underneath him and a cable pulling him <laughs> and I'm just like you went to all that trouble to disguise the fact that he wasn't actually being thrown out of a club by an 8 foot gorilla <laughs> but you couldn't cover up the fucking wire that's pulling him along on a trolley or make his suit a bit bigger or just change the angle of the fucking camera that always bugs me that yeah I, that sort of stuff annoys me as well it's like they get so much right and then there's just like a little weird amateur mistake in there that you just kind of wonder if uh, they had another shot that was just completely ruined and that's mm. all they could use yeah rookie mistake rookie mistake um, it's time for the last choice um, and I'm going to call an audible and change my last choice because I did have the, a bit from Boogie Nights down but I've just realised um, the bit from Boogie Nights incidentally was the bit with Jesse's girl with Alfred Molina dancing in his pants and smoking crack whilst Rick Springfield <laughs> plays in one of the most the tensest moments in cinema um, as a small Chinese boy in pants sets off firecrackers um, which is a great moment very unnerving yeah it's very very unnerving, very unnerving. but I'm going to change it at the last minute because I realise I've already picked Paul Thomas Anderson um, so I'm going to pick another joyous moment uh, and I'm going to pick uh, the moment from the film Swingers um, where uh, our uh, trusty gang of uh, hipsters, of kind of like uh, new lounge hipsters are um, in the Derby in LA and um, they kind of are out on the, on the kind of uh, trying to chase some tail and Mike played by John Favreau who also wrote Swingers, Swingers is one of my favourite films uh, kind of incidentally um, in it in a purely enjoyable sense um, he has been a kind of an absolute failure trying to get over this relationship and trying to kind of find a, a new girlfriend and it gets to the point where he's kind of in completely out of his comfort zone and uh, Lorraine played by uh, Heather Graham who he meets in the bar asks him to dance and we have no indication that he can do this or pull this off and then uh, the band who I believe are called Big Bad Voodoo Daddy kick up a kind of stomping swing number and slowly 
but kind of surely he kind of builds confidently into some crazy jive dancing and it's just a lovely moment that we've kind of suffered with this character all the way through and uh, that moment of him and the dance and the reactions to it from his friends and all that just kind of kind of is that uh, that's the conclusion of the journey for Mike that he kind of has, has shaken off the shackles of uh, his old relationship and kind of embraced the new yeah I mean one of the things that's great about Swingers is not only is it a very funny film, but it's a very personal film as far as John Favreau is concerned. Because I think you know it emerged from a bad relationship he was having and his own frustration about you know being an actor in Hollywood and having not really had at that point not having the career that he wanted. Obviously, since then his career's picked up just a tad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can really see in that sequence, you know, him coming into his own as a as an actor and as a writer and just kind of having suffered you know in his real life and on screen you know just getting this one moment of kind of perfect release and you know get, it, it is very sort of cathartic both in terms of you know where he was at that point in his career and where the character is at that point in the story I think it, it works beautifully on both those levels mm. and it's another one of those moments that on paper should be really cheesy and just mm. uh, trite but it, it it's played so genuinely and sincerely that it, it works really nicely yeah I think that's kind of the thing that's great about Swingers in general is there's lots of stuff in that that shouldn't work like the fact that you know as you say it's like obsessed with sort of new lounge music and stuff like that which is terribly dated and 90s and I think at the time probably seemed like painful, could have seemed painfully hip mm-hmm. and you know it's all kind of just kind of five guys going out on the town and trying to forget girls and you know forget a girl by getting girls and all that sort of stuff, but you know, it's so, it's it's so kind of heartfelt and comes from such a genuine place that you know it really works and it really that's one of the reasons why it holds up so well is it kind of has that sort of ring of truth to it even after so many years and even though like everyone in it has gone on to uh, sort of bigger and better things. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a lovely moment. They've, they've, yeah, they've somehow not managed to tarnish <laughs> the memory of swingers. Although, uh, if Finn's Fawn's career keeps going the wrong way, I think we may get Swingers too. I think that would be the worst. Oh, God. Uh, I'm just <laughs> trying to think of a tagline for it. I've got it. Your money, mo problems. <laughs> <laughs> does that... Does that... Maybe... That, that more or less works. Yeah. But And, and also, it harkens back to the uh, the mid-90s, <laughs> the heyday of, uh, of Vince Vaughn. Oh, God, that kind heyday. Of trying, to, trying to recapture something that's been lost for him. For yeah. A few years. Yeah, totally. Has has Vince Vaughn ever done anything good? What since? Yeah. Well, well I think Swingers is the high point, mm. and uh, I don't know. He's he's he was very good in Old School and Wedding Crashers. Yeah. And I I do I do like him in Dodgeball, but it's really just that kind of clump of really good stuff he was in for like two or three years, and then he just seemed to get very lazy. Mm. And those three films you mentioned, they don't seem like the hardest days of the office for him. He seemed to be just kind of just turning up and being the same character, kind of goofing off with his friends. Mm. Yeah, although he was good as Dorothy Mantooth. I hope he's back <laughs> uh, for Anchorman Two. Um, anyway, uh, such uh, pondering uh, is distracted from the fact that we finished our top ten, and that's a mighty fine list, Ed. It is, and it's a list we've actually managed to finish without everything going wrong. Mm. Oh, hang on, so shit, I, I wasn't recording. 
Yeah. <laughs> Psych. Um, yeah, um, a good list by all means, not definitive. Just ten things we thought were pretty fucking good. Um, so yeah, don't blame us if you don't like any of those moments or a moment that you liked didn't make the grade. Well, make your own fucking podcast and make your own ten top ten list. That's all I can say to that. Yeah, the problem is with you. Yeah, the problem. You're with not putting the effort in. Yeah, it's not me. It's you. Um, but anyway, um, and yeah, that's a good list. So until next time, uh, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.